want to share with you a message today of one who truly did decide to follow Jesus. One who really did never turn back. And, and I've titled the message today, The View from the Other Side of the Tax Booth. Because ultimately we're going to be dealing with an individual who is sitting in a tax booth in the moment when he is called. And we're talking about the call of Jesus upon a man named Levi. Or you may know him as Matthew, as we'll talk about here in just a few moments. But he's the author of the book of Matthew. That first gospel in the New Testament. That first book of the New Testament. That so many of you learned as you were learning those books of the Bible at a younger age. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, and I invite you to find your way to Luke chapter 5 with me. And as you're finding your way, I just want to tell you about a, a businessman who I heard about who was enjoying his first drive in a brand new sports car. All right, this thing was still shiny, fresh off of the lot. And as he's looking at the gadgets and trying to figure out how everything works on the car, he accidentally cut off an 18-wheeler. And so the truck driver of that 18-wheeler was pretty upset. I mean, he, he motioned the guy to pull over, and when the guy finally did pull over, the truck driver grabbed a piece of chalk out of his dash. He proceeded to get out of the car. He walked up about 20 yards in front of where the sports car was parked, and he drew a big circle with that chalk. And he told the driver of the sports car, he told this businessman who had been driving the car, he said, you stand in this circle, and don't you dare move out of that circle. Then he walked back to the sports car, he pulled out his pocket knife, and he sliced the tires, every one of the tires on that new sports car. Well, as he looked back to the businessman, he noticed that the businessman kind of had a little bit of a smirk on him, a little bit of a grin on his face. He said, oh, you, you think this is something special, don't you? Well, watch this. And then he took that knife and he slashed up the new leather tires on that car. Well, now when he turned back, he saw that the businessman was actually smiling. I mean, he was, his, his little grin had turned into a big smile about this situation. And so the truck driver was enraged. He ran back to his truck, and he grabbed out a, a baseball bat, and he proceeded to smash all the windows on the car. And now when he turned around and looked at the businessman, the businessman was actually chuckling a little bit. He was laughing to a certain degree. Well, the, the, the driver had had all that he could take. I mean, he wasn't getting through to this man. He thought, I'll show you. So he went back to his truck, grabbed out some gasoline, poured it all over this brand-new sports car, and set it on fire. This time, when he looked back at the businessman, the businessman could no longer control himself. He was laughing so hard. He was almost falling on the ground. And so the truck driver had to ask him. He said, what on earth are you laughing about? He said, you didn't notice it, but I stepped out of the circle four times. <laughs> Sometimes we get so used to looking at things within our own little circle of life that we miss the importance of what is going on outside of that circle. We spend so much time and so much thought Focusing on the situation that we're in or the people and the habits that are a part of our daily lives that we can't fully process the magnitude of what is going on outside of our little circle. And it can be easy to grow oblivious to the circumstances of what is going on around us. Well, today in Luke chapter 5, we'll encounter a man who has made some decisions in his life that have placed him in some circles of success and comfort and familiarity. 
this was most noticeable in his occupation. What it was that he did for a profession, for he was a tax collector. That meant that every day his job was to step behind a tax booth and to demand that taxes be paid to the Roman government from his fellow Jewish countrymen. There were poll taxes, there were import taxes and export taxes. Where he was placed along the road next to the Sea of Galilee, there would have been fishermen who would be fishing, and it would have been his job to collect the taxes on the fish which were caught. All among his Jewish countrymen, he would be exacting these taxes. And from within this circle, things probably looked pretty good. He was probably doing pretty well for himself because tax collectors in Levi's day or Matthew's day, as you might know him, were pretty wealthy. They had pretty good amount of success in their endeavors. You see, all they had to do was tweak the numbers just a bit on the taxes that they were collecting from their fellow Jews, and then they could make a pretty decent living. And, and Matthew had a pretty good support group in this endeavor. There were lots of other tax collectors who were living the high life at the expense of others. So life was looking pretty good from the safe side of the tax booth for this man named Levi. Or as you may know him from the book that God used him to write, Matthew. And you'll hear me use those names Levi and Matthew interchangeably here because ultimately we're referring to the same individual. How do we know that? Well, in, in Luke's gospel and in Mark's gospel, so this, this account of this man being called is recorded in all three of what we would call the synoptic gospels. We call them the synoptic gospels just because there's a lot of similar content that is shared between each one of those gospels. And those three gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So all three of those gospels record the account of this man who is called by Jesus from his tax booth and the same words of Jesus being spoken to this man so we know it's the same man in each one of those cases but in luke's account which we're going to look at here today as well as in mark's account we have this individual being referred to as levi which may have been something that the disciples had given him a nickname of later on because of his heritage and the tribe that he was a part of there was a levitical tribe within uh, the nation of israel and so this man was probably a, 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 a descendant of that tribe of levi which would be how he would get this name Levi. But ultimately in Matthew's gospel, we see that this man is referred to as Matthew. And you'll notice the similarity there, right? I'm talking about Matthew's gospel and a man named Matthew. Essentially, Matthew is recording the account of his own calling. And so when we talk about these two terms, when you hear me use these two terms, just know that I'm using those interchangeably. Levi is Matthew. These are the same individual that we're talking about in the scriptures here today because of the obvious circumstances that we see between these accounts that are laid out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know that we're talking about the same guy. And it wasn't uncommon in this day for individuals to have multiple names. For example, you all know of Peter, who was also known as Cephas, right? Or maybe you know of um, Bartholomew, who was also known as Nathaniel. So just like that, Levi and Matthew are just two names to refer to the same person. So don't get tripped up if you hear me using one or the other, okay? Now, tax collectors in Matthew's day were able to get rich, but the wealth that, that they earned came with a certain number of disadvantages among their countrymen. For one, tax collectors were hated by everyone else who was around them. They were hated by other Jews because they were Jews themselves, 
But they had defected from the Jews in order to go and work for the Roman government. You see, the way this would work, the Roman government would put out bids for individuals to buy in to take control over a certain area in collecting taxes. And so the highest bidder who said, we can give you the most tax, would be the one who won the bid, was then able to go and collect the taxes. Well, the problem with that was that these individuals wanted to make a profit for themselves. So in the competition of bidding, they're saying, well, I can take the most money from individuals who we're going to be collecting the taxes from. And so in the end, they ended up being this group which was such a crude uh, bunch. They, w- they would ultimately, bar- they, would all- they would charge much more tax than the government was taking. And as they were taking this excess tax, they would skim off the bottom part of that to hold to themselves. And they would get very wealthy this way. But in the process of that, they were making widows and orphans destitute through their work. And so you can imagine that this would be a trade which many individuals would not appreciate. I mean, do do any of you enjoy paying taxes? Any of you kind of wait by the mailbox and say, I can't wait to see the tax bill come in, right? I mean, it's a bad thing for us to think through the, the, the pain of paying taxes, right? But we don't have to worry about this mafia-type organization. Ultimately, if you couldn't pay the taxes that the tax collectors demanded of you in Jesus' day, then those tax collectors would, would lend you a loan with a 50% interest on those taxes. And then if you couldn't pay the loan, then they would call their, their companions to come and to break your legs, I mean, this was essentially a mafia of sorts in Jesus' day. Very vile in their participation in the nation of Israel. And on top of that, they were not just collecting taxes to be distributed among the Jews. They were taking money from the Jews, and they were giving that money to the Gentiles. Because, as I mentioned earlier, they were working for the Roman government. And Israel was still of the mindset that we are an independent nation. We are God's people We are under occupation. We should not be paying monies to this other organization, this other nation which has taken us captive. So you can imagine what the animosity would have been between the Jews and those who were collecting taxes for the Roman government in their midst, especially in light of all the evils that they carried out. So tax collectors were seen as traitors. They'd signed away the welfare of their countrymen for the gains of temporary wealth. And they were definitely hated. So much so that they were prevented from worshiping in the Jewish synagogues. The rabbis taught that a tax collector should not be allowed to come into worship in the synagogue, in the gathering of God's people. The best thing that rabbis of the tax collector's day in Matthew's day could say about those tax collectors was that they were just a little bit lower than the prostitutes. This was the mentality of the level of sin that Matthew and others who are participating in his trade were experiencing in the life of Israel at this point. And so as Levi stepped into his familiar circle behind his tax collector's booth on this day, he was probably one of the wealthiest men in the city of Capernaum. But he was also probably one of the most hated men in the city of Capernaum. He was probably despised as a sinner and a thug in his town because he made a living by stealing from others and giving to a foreign occupying power. 
But as Matthew was about to have his eyes opened here in this passage, we, we see that someone is calling him outside of his levels of familiarity, calling him to depart from the circle that he is used to. And surely he must have committed, he, he, must, have, he must have considered so many times before what it would be like, what life would be like if he had taken some other path, if he had pursued some other career, if he hadn't signed away his ability to communicate with his family, his ability to go into God's house and worship. What would it be like for me if I was able to join together with others in worship of the living God? Surely, surely Matthew must have thought of these things. But from this side of the tax collector's booth, any changes in that seemed um, impossible. It seemed like he'd already signed away any potential of any of that ever happening. Until one day when the master came calling. Let's read about that encounter now. Luke chapter 5, we'll be starting in verse 27. Here we read, After that, he, that is Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What wonderful truth we find here in these verses. And there's a lot that we can unpack in this brief passage that we've taken a look at here today. But let me start by just summarizing what Levi found when he followed Jesus. And and this is the same thing that you will find if you make the decision to follow Jesus. Jesus brings healing and joy to imperfect sinners who repent and follow him. Let me say that again. Jesus brings healing and joy to imperfect sinners who repent and follow him. That's a summarization of what we're going to look at here in these verses here today. But but let me break that out for you in in a different sort of way. Let me share with you five common misconceptions about following Jesus that really are debunked if we dig into this passage deeper. Five common misperceptions about following Jesus. The first one is this. Following Jesus is not just for mild sinners. Following Jesus is not just for mild sinners. Luke begins these verses with after that, which takes us back to last week's passage to see, well, what is this account coming after? Ultimately, this is coming after the healing of the paralytic. You remember we talked last week about how Jesus was there teaching in this most crowded of all houses, and all of a sudden, the roof opens up, and a stretcher drops down with a man on that stretcher, and Jesus says to that man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. 
And there's all this murmuring, murmuring and complaining amongst those who say, well, who is this man who says he can forgive sins? And Jesus goes on to show them, I have the authority to forgive sins. How are you going to know that? Because now I'm telling this man who is paralyzed, this man who cannot function on his own, who cannot move on his own, his friends have to bring him to this place. I'm going to tell him to get up, take up your mat, and go home. And so Jesus proves his authority to do the first thing that he said by showing the very visible display of his authority in the second thing which he tells him to do and that the man does get up. He takes his mat and he goes home and everyone is amazed at what happens in this moment. So through this, Jesus has shown that he has the authority to do what they were saying, who has the authority to do, which is to forgive sins. Well, the next question you might have if you were reading through the Gospel of Luke, which is ultimately this Gospel of Outcasts, this Gospel which over and over again shows us that individuals have stepped away from God's will, and yet Christ pursues them. The next question you might have is, well, okay, well, maybe this guy was just paralyzed and only had a little bit of sin, right? You know, maybe he ran an orphanage or something before he broke his back. But what, what, what extent of sin is Jesus willing to forgive? That's the natural question maybe we go to next. And so the question we have in our minds is, how far is Jesus willing to go to save sinners? And now we find that we move from the worst of all physical conditions and that we've already seen a leper here who is just visibly, because of his physical nature, repulsive to everyone to the point where they drive him out of the city. We've seen this paralytic who is disabled to the point that he can't move around on his own. They're both physically very bad in terms of their health and their shape. But now, what about spiritually? I mean, these guys could have been pretty decent guys. How severe is Jesus willing to go when it comes to dealing with the spiritual depths of our malady of sin? And what we find here is that Jesus is willing to address those with the deepest of all sins. Jesus is willing to heal the tax collector, the thug, the thief, the traitor, of his sin. Jesus is willing to forgive the vilest of all sinners. And so the misperception that tends to come when we talk about Christianity is that Jesus doesn't care for the vilest of the vile. We see individuals who created, who committed heinous crimes. We see individuals who committed their lives to pursuing things which are totally contrary to Jesus' desire. And we, and we somehow come with this mentality sometimes that some individuals are too far from him to be saved. And, and Jesus steps into the life of someone who everybody thought that about here in this passage and shows that's a wrong notion. Because the vilest of the vile has not escaped the richness of his love and what he came to do. And do you ever think, my friend, do you, do you ever think my sin is too vile to be forgiven? My wrongs are too severe to make right. Do you ever come away with that sort of mentality that's just down on yourself that says there's no hope for me because my sins are too great? I want to share with you good news, my friends. You're not too far. His grace is enough. His love overwhelms your sin. His righteousness stands in the place of your sin, the just for the unjust, that you might be reconciled to God. And I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, Christ enables you to find this grace and this mercy, and he calls you to be saved through his 
work and his righteousness. Jesus cares for the vilest of the vile. And he sees value in every sinner. Luke, uniquely in his recording of this calling of Matthew, records that Jesus noticed Matthew. It's a Greek word, theaomai, which is a word that doesn't just mean that Jesus saw him in passing. It means that he actually took an account of him. He took time to study him. He took time to focus on him. He beheld Matthew. He viewed Matthew attentively. He looked at Matthew with admiration. He studied Matthew. It's what Jesus did in this moment. I mean, this vilest of all sinners, this one who is robbing his countrymen, this one who is depriving widows and orphans, Jesus takes time to study him and to call him. Why would he do that? Well, this wasn't just a passing glance. Jesus saw Matthew for what he truly was. Jesus saw Matthew swindling others. Jesus saw Matthew depriving others. It wasn't like Jesus just happened to come across Matthew and didn't know about all the history of who he was. Jesus studied Matthew. He probably also saw what Matthew had experienced in his own heart and his own mind. His own yearnings to say, man, I wish I could get away from this life. His own guilt to say, man, I know that this was the wrong thing to do. The fact that he was not satisfied in the pursuits which he thought would make him satisfied when he first signed up for this career. I'm sure that, that, that Matthew was there in that tax booth hearing about all the excitement of what was happening around Capernaum as Jesus was healing multitudes of individuals. As Jesus had brought about this great catch of fish there in the sea that was very, very straight in front of him. I'm sure that Matthew knew about these things and thought about these things and said, man, I wish I had not signed up for what I signed up for. I wish I wasn't in this circle because I really wish that I, that was for me. And Jesus studies and Jesus knows these things about Matthew. And ultimately, we find that Matthew is found in Jesus' eyes to be a fulfillment of what his name really means. Because the word Matthew really means in the Hebrew, gift of Yahweh, gift of the Lord, gift of God. That's what the meaning of Matthew is. And when Jesus sees this broken down sinner, he sees one who could be a prize of heaven. And ultimately we find in Matthew that he is indeed a gift of Yahweh because of the response of Yahweh in the flesh. God in the flesh, Christ himself, reaching out in these moments. How extensive is the forgiveness of God? It reaches out to the worst. It reaches out to the tax collectors. It reaches out to the outcasts. It reaches out to the deepest and the vilest of all sinners. It reaches out to the thugs and the thieves and the prostitutes and the homosexuals and those who are pursuing any manner of idols in their own lives. The grace of Christ reaches out and he says, follow me. And following Jesus isn't just for mild sinners. That's the first common misperception about following Jesus that we see in these verses. The second is this. Following Jesus is not an abandonment of joy. Following Jesus is not an abandonment of joy. Jesus commands Matthew with two simple words. Follow me. And with those words, Matthew leaves everything. 
He gets out of his circle, and he hits the road to follow Jesus. And the New American Standard Bible does well in capturing here what the, the Greek verb conveys. As he left everything, that's a complete action, and he began to follow Jesus. That's an ongoing, continual sort of action. He began to go with Jesus. Matthew didn't know what was ahead. He's just beginning this road. He doesn't know where this road is going to go. But he's placed his trust in the one who's leading him there. And in the midst of that, he has a confidence that Jesus is going to take him to what he longs for, something greater, something forgiving, something restoring. And that's where he has decided he is going to put his feet. Because now feet are joined to faith as Matthew is following Jesus. But to get there, he had to make a sharp turn. He had to repent. And ultimately, repentance is just a word which simply means turning away from the sinful way that I was living to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. Levi's actions, as they're described here in verse 28, are very much a picture of what biblical repentance should look like. Because he walked away from his greedy lifestyle and his own pursuits, and he, and he starts to follow Jesus. He becomes obedient to Christ. That's what, that's what repentance is, giving up my own pursuits, which are contrary to Christ, and then turning to follow Christ with my life and with my pursuits and with my heart. And for Levi, that meant leaving everything. Now, not everyone is required in following Jesus to give up their job and all their money the instant that they come to Christ. But you can be sure, my friends, that everyone must see that repentance means turning away from our idols to follow the living God. But our world doesn't like that world word, does it? Repentance? I mean, I don't think there's a lot of people who like to hear that they need to repent. We don't like to have folks telling us that we're going in the wrong direction, that we need to turn to Christ. I heard about two country preachers who were out on the road one day, and they were holding up signs. One of the signs said, the end is near, and the other one said, turn yourself around before it's too late. Well, a car came speeding past them, and the driver leaned out of his window, and he yelled, leave us alone, you religious nuts. And then just a few moments later, you heard a screeching of tires and a splash. They had driven into a bridge, which was out. One pastor looked at the other and said, don't you think maybe we should just redo the signs to say the bridge is out? Repent is rarely the message that we want to hear because it calls us to an uncomfortable action. It calls us to recognize that we're heading in the wrong direction. It reminds us that we're going the wrong way. But if you're heading in the wrong direction, isn't that exactly the message that you need to hear? Have any of you ever been going in the wrong direction in your own life and realize that you needed to repent? I know that I sure have. And, and to, to be truth, truthful with you, there have been times when I needed to turn over a new leaf, when I needed to radically change my ways, and, and, and I, I probably didn't want anybody speaking to that need. As a matter of fact, when I first came to Christ, I remember some guys kind of calling me out on some things in my life, and I didn't want to hear it. I mean, in my mind, you know, I've always been in church. I've always been doing this sort of thing. What, who are you to tell me that I need to go a different sort of direction? But it was ultimately the message that I needed to hear. It was the message that God used to draw me by the power of his grace to find something so much more. 
It was what I needed to hear. The misperception, though, is that when we repent, we're going to leave the exciting life. Right, right, we get this mentality that, well, if we're leaving all the things that we're really pursuing that are not Christ-like, all the things that we've, we've wrapped up our idolatry in, all the things that we find our joy and our satisfaction in, which are contrary to Him, then when we turn away from those things, we're going to be turning away from our joy. We're going to be turning away from our satisfaction. That's the misperception. Then we're no longer going to have an exciting life. We're going to be bored. We're going to be miserable if we repent. But I can say this from my personal experience, that this has not been the case. I've never left anything for Jesus that can compare with the joy that I know being saved by Him. And you see, when you acknowledge that you're heading in the wrong way and you decide to pursue Christ, that's when the real party begins. That's truly what happened for for Matthew in these verses. We see that when Jesus calls him to follow him, what does Matthew do right after that? He holds a banquet. He holds a party in his own home. He invites all of his friends to this place. There's a celebration that happens. And that's true for any Christian who repents. Later, as we get later in the book of of Luke, we're going to find this so, so clearly spelled out. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I tell you, there is more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Friend, do you want a celebration that has lasting joy? Do you want to celebrate without the hangovers, without the regrets, without the need to hide from the law or from your family or your friends? Then you need to repent and you need to follow Jesus because you will find life. Repent and find life in Him. Repent and find joy in Him. He gives lasting joy. He gives lasting peace. He gives true and lasting contentment. And don't buy into that lie that says if you repent, you'll be walking into a life that is no longer joyful. Because that's a misconception about following Jesus. Following Jesus is not an abandonment of joy. It is a taking up of true joy. Here's the third misconception about following Jesus. Following Jesus is not a call to lose your friends. Following Jesus is not a call to lose your friends. As Levi leaves the world that he knows behind to follow Jesus, and he steps into this joy, he holds that banquet that we've already mentioned. Who does he invite? I mean, Levi can't, like, invite the elites of society, right? He's been a thug. So who does he invite? He invites his other thugs. He invites the other tax collectors. And he invites others, as Luke says, but later in the passage we see the Pharisees referring to them as the tax collectors and sinners we can imagine what this sort of mafia in matthew's day what kind of companions they might have had right what kind of friends they might have had i can only imagine that in this gathering of individuals around this banquet with jesus that there are all manner of sinners prostitutes and drug addicts and thieves they all come to dine with jesus at this one banquet together And what we see from this account is this, following Jesus is not a call to lose your friends. Hear me again, following Jesus is not a call to lose your friends. It's a call to win your friends. Because that's the ambition that Luke 
shows us is in Levi's heart as he gathers with this banquet. This, this banquet is not a banquet to celebrate the fleecing of Israel. It's, it's not a banquet to celebrate how much extra funds had been taken in in the treasury. Levi hasn't scheduled this banquet to celebrate the things that his friends are prone to do. There is one honored guest in verse 29. For Luke records that Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. You see, Matthew was now living for Jesus. And living for Jesus meant honoring Jesus among sinful people, including his sinful friends. You see, when you come to Jesus, you don't ditch life around sinners. Sinners become your mission field. And I think far too often we're prone to get into this mentality that we want to come into the fort, right? The church is the fort. Let's barricade the doors. Let's keep the sin out of here. When the reality is that we need to be welcoming sinners to find the grace that we too have found. Matthew is now living for Jesus. He was living on the mission field. And we can't call lost people to repent if we're never around lost people. We can't reach sinners without going where the sinners are. Sure, we may have a few who trickle in here every now and then at our gatherings. But most individuals who are lost in sin, pursuing their own idolatries outside of this place, will never darken the doors of our church. And they need to know that there is one who can transform then Matthew knows this Matthew wants his friends to meet the transformer he wants them to meet the healer and so in this moment Matthew turns his house into a hospital he invites those who are sick with sin to come in to meet the great physician through this place which he is calling them to and friends are there ways that you can transform your house into a hospital you ever thought about that? Maybe you've got some friends who would never come with you if you invited them to church. It's just not their experience, not something they're used to. But if you were to invite them over for dinner, they might come for a meal. Are there gospel opportunities that you could have by preparing a meal, by making your house into a hospital that might draw others to the grace of Christ that would not have the opportunity if you were only extending what we so typically will extend as our most extensive way of sharing in evangelism and saying, will you come to church with me? I want us all to think about how can we use all the resources of who we are? You see, the, the Bible says that, that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. Well, he's still got a house, but he's no longer using the house for his own pursuits. He's ultimately entrusted everything that he has into Jesus' hands, including his home in these moments. And the Pharisees can't stand it. Nor can they understand it. They grumble, which is probably what we ought to expect, right? The, the Pharisees are that group of individuals who were entrusted with keeping up with the law and the applications of the law. We talked about them last week, right? But in their applications of the law, they ultimately got this holier-than-thou sort of mentality that, that ultimately they began to think that their responsibility was to steer clear of sinners. And what's wrong with that sort of mentality? If we think we're steering clear of sinners, what does that assume we are not? Sinners, right? The Pharisees had, had surely come to the resolution in their mind, we're keeping the stipulations of the law, and so we are not sinners. But the Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
There is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ultimately, the problem that we see here is that we are all sinners. The problem is that when we have the mentality that says we're going to stay separate from sinners, then we're, we're saying that somehow we are not sinners, and that's just not true. Matthew's own record in this gospel records that Jesus scolds these Pharisees and gives them a lesson that Luke doesn't record here, but it's a lesson that comes from an Old Testament passage. So, so Jesus, in scolding the Pharisees, he tells them, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You see, God has a heart of mercy. He has a heart of compassion. He has a heart that would draw others to that mercy, to his heart. That's what Matthew's doing here. He was trying to bring his friends in their brokenness to Christ. And Jesus' heart was to heal these broken sinners likewise i just want to say that jesus wants us to draw the lost to his mercy here on earth his prayer for us in john chapter 17 we call it his high priestly prayer before jesus goes to the cross he prays on our behalf he prays on behalf of those who would come after him he prays on behalf of his church that's us his prayer for us is not that we would be taken out of the world but that we would be in the world but not of the world. He desires that we would be sanctified in his truth, set apart because of the truth that we believe, not because of the situation that we are in. And then he prays that we would be sent into the world to win others to his grace. So ultimately, Jesus wants us in the world, but not of the world. He wants us sanctified by his truth, working in the midst of the world that's around us, this fallen, broken creation, to bring others to the truth that he has shared with us. But we've got to be cautious as we do that, right? Jesus was able to be in this banquet and not be tempted. Jesus had a purity that was invincible, but we have a purity that's not invincible, right? So there are some safeguards that we must put in place if we're going to live out this sort of life, if we're going to strive to win our sinful neighbors to Christ. There's some things that are good, practical things that we need to consider as we do that. First of all, we must know that our limitations are different. We actually have limitations, as a matter of fact, and our temptations are strong as we go into the world. So if you're, if you're have certain limitations and certain temptations, you need to be aware of these things as you go and try to be a witness to your neighbors. If you're easily tempted, for example, to drunkenness with alcohol, then you probably shouldn't witness to your colleagues at the bar after church, right? That's a setting that you need to avoid. Don't give the devil room to make provision for the flesh. There are plenty of other avenues for you to witness to your friends and your neighbors to, without walking into the minefields which can lead you into your own temptations and your own sins. Also, we must keep the redemption of others as our focus as we go out into the world. We're not simply going into the world in order to hang out with the world or in order to make the world feel as though its sins are okay. And I think that's where we've kind of, in our society in general, gone off to a different extreme. We, we want to explain sin as though it's no longer sin. We want to make people feel justified in the situation that they are in such that there is no need for them to come to one who could address that sin. 
And so we, we've got to have a mentality that wants to be among sinners of all varieties because we are sinners of all varieties who found healing for our sin, but ultimately we don't go just to hang out and just to have a good time with sinners. We go because we want to show sinners that there is a way to find lasting peace and forgiveness and life. And I want this church to be a church that ministers to and welcomes prostitutes and drug pushers and homosexual men and women and idolaters and thieves and other outcasts like me. Doesn't mean that we're striving to join them in their sin or to redefine the sin so that they're comfortable to keep doing what they've been doing. But we do want to reach out because we love sinners. Because Jesus loves sinners. And Jesus is wanting them back. And we believe that we found the one who can forgive our sins. We realize that not one of us is anything more than a sinner who is in need of God's grace and mercy. And at best, we can say we found that through Christ. And so Matthew turned his house into a hospital. The next common misperception about following Jesus is this. Following Jesus is not for those who have it all together. It's not for those who have it all together. Can you imagine one of your friends telling you, as soon as I get better, I'm going to go to the doctor? It just doesn't make sense to talk about things happening in that way, right? Let, let, me, let me get better, and then I'll go to the doctor. Now, why? I mean, I mean the doctor's there to help you with your issues. The, the doctor's there to help you with your healing. If you're sick, you need a doctor. If you're not sick, you don't need a doctor anymore. But, you know, far too often in the church, individuals get this equation backward. They say, let me get my life cleaned up. Let, let me conquer some of these bad habits of mine, and then I'll become a Christian. D do you see how that's backwards? And perhaps the reason people think this way is because we give the impression that our, in our churches that we're good people who don't have any problems. But do we have problems? Yeah. I mean, you know, we shine up pretty good for Sunday mornings, right? We don't let those problems hang out when we come into this place. And so individuals come to this mentality it says, well, I need to be cleaned up like they're cleaned up before I could ever have a chance of being a part of what they're a part of. And perhaps the reason that people think this way is because we give them the impression in our churches that we're good people who don't have any problems and, and people who are struggling within their fallen nature don't think that they can relate to us because we seem to be all smiles, right? And so they think Christianity is some exclusive club for good people who found a way to deal with their problems. The only issue is that our founder states exactly the opposite in verse 31. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And then again in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is important, my friends. We've got to be sure that we understand the difference. You've got to be sure that you understand the difference here. If you think that Jesus saves morally sound people, good people, because they go to church and they try not to upset him, then you have missed the heart of the gospel. 
If you think that someday God will allow you into heaven because you've tried your best and you've always made an effort of going to church and giving to the church and, and you've always been trying to, to, to be intentional about not hurting anyone, if you think that these things are earning you a place in God's eternal city, then you are in for a rude awakening. Because what Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 should shake our foundations when it comes to thinking of ourselves as spiritually good. And it ought to cause you to rethink your standing before him. Because if you are spiritually pretty good, then you don't need to go to the spiritual doctor. If you're morally good, you don't need to be healed of your spiritual sickness. If you're already righteous, then you don't need to repent. The only problem is that the Bible says there is None righteous, no, not one. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sick with sin. We're all eaten up with this disease which is common to all of mankind. And just as surely as sick people need a doctor, sinful people need a redeemer. And Jesus has come to be that redeemer. Jesus has come to be that healer that we need. Have you, my friends, cast all of your efforts to earn your own way at His feet? Have you run to Him with the truth that only He can make you well? Because He is the only one who can make this difference. And here in this passage, we find that the same call that lifted the paralytic from his stretcher last week now lifts a sinner named Levi from his fleecing booth. And he will lift you out of your sin as well. He will heal you. He will make you right with God. It is his desire to do so for whosoever will come by faith to Christ, clinging only to his mercy and the work that he has exacted on our behalf. That's the heart of God. And it's a heart for you. And we, church, church, we need to welcome sinners. Because Christ calls sinners to repentance. Can you imagine a doctor's office with a sign that says, We only see healthy patients. Do not enter if you are sick. Can you imagine that sort of doctor's office? Just wouldn't make sense, right? That would be ludicrous. Likewise, as a church, we should never give the impression that only good people are welcome here. Sinners should stay away. Because Jesus didn't come to call good people. He came to call sinners to repentance. And being a Christian doesn't mean having it all together. Being a Christian means yielding your life to the one who has it all together. Following Jesus is not... For those who have it all together. The final misconception about following Jesus is this. Following Jesus is not a net loss. At first glance, it looks like Matthew loses everything when he comes to Christ. I mean, in Luke's gospel, Luke explicitly says that Levi left everything behind and began to follow him according to verse 28. And Matthew certainly did give up a lot, right? I mean, because here in an instant we found that he left his post... Right? That, is, that was his tax booth. He left the place where he was working. He left his position, which was that work of being a tax collector. And then he left his prospects. 
I mean, just think, if following Jesus didn't work out for Matthew, he'd abandon his former career. I'm sure they wouldn't take him back to that, being a defector from that. And everybody else knew that he was a thief, a crook. Nobody else would hire him. Matthew ultimately leaves all of these things, his post and his position and his prospects. And yet leaving everything for Levi means that he walked away from every loyalty that would have been his former loyalty and that would have competed with his loyalty with Christ so that he might know a greater loyalty in him. But you know what I find interesting in this passage? It's not something you'll recognize unless you spend a little bit of time studying between these like, like I have this past week. But what I find most interesting about this account of, of Jesus' call of Matthew is that Matthew doesn't record what Luke records here. You know, Matthew, as the author of his gospel, had the ability to write in any detail that he wanted to when it comes to this calling. But there's one particular phrase that's missing when we compare Matthew's gospel with the gospel of Luke. And it's the kind of thing that we think we would probably want everybody to know about, right? Luke says in verse 28, And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Here's the parallel account of that in Matthew's own recording, which simply says in verse 9, and he got up and followed him. What's missing there? If you, if you look at a comparison of those two verses, which is the next slide there, you'll find that the thing that is missing is that Matthew, in his own gospel, does not call out the fact that he left everything behind. Now, now you would think if there was ever going to be a time to tout your own sacrifice, this is it. I mean, if there's ever, ever a time to let everybody know, this is what I've given up to follow Jesus, this would be it. But Matthew doesn't record that one fact about himself. Why is that important, you say? Because I believe if you were to ask Matthew about it, he would say what I would say and what so many of you would say. Because this wasn't the moment that Matthew lost everything. This was the moment that Matthew gained everything. Matthew may have left it all behind, but what he found in Christ was so much more valuable, so much greater riches did he find in him that anything that he left in his past was not worthy of comparing to what he had gained in Christ Jesus, his Lord. And in Matthew's own gospel, he records this important conversation in Matthew chapter 19. We read in verse 27. Then Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And hear this, church, this is for all of you. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So what we've read this morning is not an account of how Matthew lost everything. We've read an account of how Matthew gained everything. That's the view from the other side of the tax booth. That's the view of what Matthew found when he followed Christ. And that's the same view that Christ offers to you. If you walk out of that circle 
that is your life, that is pursuing your own interests, that is at enmity with God. Don't say, God, I can't do this on my own. But falling into your arms of mercy, would you forgive me? Would you set me on a new path? Would you make me an inheritor of all of these possessions that you've promised to the saints? And he will gladly do that because that is his heart. Christ came on a mission trip for this very purpose. He took on sinful humanity, at least in the sense that we're all fallen. He took on flesh and blood and redeemed by his own sinlessness that which we could not redeem on our own. He walked on our side as a missionary. He redeemed individuals. He called them by his grace. And he ultimately went to the cross of Calvary, dying and bearing the penalty of our sins so that we don't have to. He died in our place, the just for the unjust. His blood was shed as a propitiation of our sins, a satisfaction of the wrath of God. And then ultimately, on the third day, God raised him from the dead as a proof that this sacrifice of this one was sufficient so that anyone who would come to him by faith would receive the promises that he had promised, would receive the life that he now lived. He was the first fruits. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is nothing that you can leave behind that can compare with what God now offers you in Christ. And so I plead with you, my friends, this is the day of salvation. This is the day to turn away from your sins. This is the day to cling to God's mercy. This is the day to run to him for all that he has promised. Because God is still working to save sinners in this moment through Christ who has come and forgiveness can be yours through him. And so I call for you, decide what Matthew decided, to follow Jesus and don't turn back as we've sung together here this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, great truths we see in your word. That though we are sick with our sin, though we've got the greatest malady which, which breaks us not just from physical life here today as we so often see sin doing, but our sin sets us at enmity with you and breaks away true eternal life in your presence, enjoying your fellowship. And yet, God, you don't desire for us to stay there. Christ has come to heal those who are sick with sin. We see in your word here today, God. And so I pray that not a heart, not a soul would leave this place without considering the gravity of our own sickness, the 